0: All right. So all right, we did it, We covered this right at the end of class. Uh, this it is often commented that while Muslims may think those who deny the existence of God or who utter blasphemies about Him are misguided, such discussion will not offend in the same manner in which discussions over Muhammad. Was. So that uh, so for some, I mean, I think for most of us, this is kind of a a surprising statement. You know that that actually it's more offensive to a Muslim to hear someone say something negative about Muhammad than it would be just to outright deny God uh, so that, that so I mean that's kind of a shocking statement for most of us because it's not how we would imagine um, Muslims to, to actually live their lives out um, I think as Christians we would easily we easily dis- dismiss the claims of Muhammad I mean we, we don't have to uh, for ourselves, we don't, I mean, it's, it's not, it's just a matter of fact. We read about inconsistencies in his life, the words we, he spoke, maybe you've read some material about that. We're not surprised, right? Because we know that, uh, as Christians that he is not who he claims to be. And while it's absolutely true that Muhammad is, is the central figure of Islam, and now we're, we're kind of getting into the nuts and bolts, he doesn't occupy this in, uh, the same place in the religion as Jesus does. So Jesus isn't like the, or Muhammad is not the version, you know, the Muslim version of Jesus in that religion. He doesn't occupy in the same position. Uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, Jesus' claims of divinity uh, and how necessary that is to our understanding of who Jesus is, the role that Jesus plays in the religion. And I uh, mentioned last week that Muhammad never claims divinity. He never claims miracles on himself. He never performed. There's no miracles other than. Receiving that revelation from Gabriel at the beginning, there's no miracles associated with the life of Muhammad. He never claims them. His followers never um, uh, put them with his life. But as we said, he's the model He's the model of what every true believer, every true Muslim wants to be. He's the goal to which they, they aim for. And so that kind of helps us to understand why that, that, this statement is true. He's the. If he is the, um, the picture of what a Muslim should be, an attack on Muhammad means that you're attacking all Muslims in general because they're hoping to be. They want to live life like Muhammad, and in in that way that I. Uh, I, wasn't, I don't remember if we covered this, but it, there, that's the overlap. So, if there is an overlap between Jesus and Muhammad, it's that um, that you know both the follower, the followers of the in the respective religion uh, want to be like that. Uh, like Jesus or like Muhammad. So, laying out the details of, of Muhammad's life prior to receiving his revelations uh, that would come to be known as the Quran. Uh, we're given a, a picture of a normal man. And th- these films that will, uh, next week, the documentary will cover that. It'll talk about Muhammad was just an average guy. There's nothing noteworthy, really outside the ordinary about his life in the first 40 years. So up until the age of 40, he lives just a, a, an average life. You know, he's he's um, unexceptional in many ways. And th- that's not completely true, but that, that's... Uh, that's the stress there that Muslims will say. Um, he had extraordinary traits, but he didn't live in any kind of extraordinary life. Uh, those traits that, and we'll, we'll touch on what those are, those extraordinary traits would later be used uh, by his followers to validate his prophethood. Um, Jim? Yeah. So you're not talking about his character or his integrity. That's That's where that's where they would point to. So he that's uh what Muslims would say is that he had he was he had a, a high level of integrity that he was set apart in that way. And did they have a, a different idea of what integrity is? Well, uh, according to if you remember what we talked about in that first pre-Islamic history that Jahaliya period, the things that mark what a, an Arab man uh, what those uh, markers were, he exemplified. So maybe not Western morals or Christian morals, um, but I think there is some overlap. I mean, he was—they would say—he was honest, he was faithful. Uh, the reasons why someone like Jesus is um, not in a divine sense, but Jesus's life uh, is takes notice from Muslims is because of his virtues. Of, you know, and then in the same way, Muslim, Islam, uh, Muhammad uh Mohammed has shares a lot of that. At least that's what the history obviously is saying. So, um, so I guess related to that point, my next point is that at this point, there is no serious debate whether Muhammad was an actual historical figure. Uh, it's generally ex- there's, it's just accepted across the board. Muhammad there was this person that we know is Muhammad actually did live at the, around the times that we're talking about so there's no serious uh any any discussion any really in any circles whether or not there was uh this person muhammad so um just to add that to the uh you know and that most of the biographical details we know about muhammad are, are largely true biographical facts when he was born where he was born the tribe he was born to that kind of thing. so what are those details I should. I think most of those are late uh, Some of those are probably not laid out. So let me give you some some dates. Mohammed was born in 570. A lot of these the dates and things are not that important, but I'll give them to you. Mohammed was born in 570, roughly 570 A.D. A.D. 570, I should say, in the region of Mecca, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia. So. Uh, Mecca is here, so you can see right at the, right about here is where he's born. Somewhere in that region, um, the culture that Muhammad was born to was primarily nomadic. We talked a little bit about what that meant. This Bedouin, you maybe heard that phrase before. Bedouin culture. Um, what this meant that with these groups, these Bedouins uh, subsisted largely off their herds. So they were uh, people they migrated with their uh, sheep with their goats, uh, primarily camels uh, because of the harsh climate that they were in. Uh, camels were uh, important because they are hardy and uh, you could live off their milk. Uh, their milk was very rich in fat and things like that, so it was provided a good resource. They can go for long periods of time without water, unlike many of the other uh, animals that they would use, uh, sheep and goats, those kind of things. And so these groups, these Bedouins, would move from oasis to oasis, des- you know, across the desert, uh, eking out a living. Um, parts of it are like you would imagine the Sahara Desert or the Arabian Desert, you know, just sand. Some of it was like Utah. I don't know if you've ever been out to Utah, the Southwest, where it's the desert is not like just sand. It's, it's hard rock. It's, if you ever been to uh, Israel, the Judean Desert, that area, it's not it's not what you with the sand. It's more just a dry, hard. Uh, rocky climate so it's a mixture of that uh, in Arabian, the Arabian Peninsula, central Arabia this part here and these trade routes are the are, are noteworthy because these are where these Bedouins are kind of following these trade routes uh, and moving along these trade routes as well on these trade routes are, are are there where they are because these are where oasis will be located. Uh, so steady water, you know, you could rely on water to be located along these routes uh, seasonally, and so they would follow those routes. Are they roads? Uh, no. no, 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 not roads. Any, nothing like a road. It basically just, I mean, so you could, if a person who didn't know, you would just be lost. You would not be able to follow it at all. Um, so they would engage in this caravan trade. These Bedouins got involved with the caravan trade, uh, and follow, you know. So they're living along those lines. Uh, knowledge of the terrain, these oasises, the camels uh, are all important to their lifestyle. Uh, the reason we want to think of the desert, you know, when you picture the desert, you just think of this empty wasteland. You know, sand, rock, whatever you picture, it's just emptiness. Um, but that's uh, and in well, big parts of it. It, that is the case, but along these trade routes, there are settle, There end up being settlements because the caravans would stop and rest, and where wherever there was an oasis, a small town, maybe a little settlement would, would settle. So you have these little settlements that would begin to form up. But in, in mar, large parts of it, it is pretty empty. But uh, as just prior to the time of Muhammad, and, and maybe the two hundred years of living uh, leading up to the time of Muhammad. Uh, the cultures, the, the Bedouin tribes around uh, Arabia began to urbanize. So not all and not completely, but some of the tribes began to settle into towns and, and to stop uh, the migration, but to actually just make their living off in, in towns and in these small cities. Uh, nothing like we would think of a city. but um, They kept that culture, though. So as Stephanie's question, you know, what kind of virtues or what did they believe... They, even though they would stop that lifestyle, everything about that, that lifestyle is still important uh, to these cultures, even if they uh, to these Bedouins as they began to urbanize. And it's actually still the case today. So there's still these remnants. If you go to these places, uh, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, uh, the Gulf countries, uh, there's still these remnants and these uh, uh, vestiges of this uh, Bedouin lifestyle. Um, whether it's just phrases they say, you know, things like that, foods they eat, that kind of stuff. Uh, camel racing, you know, camels are still. Uh, I remember I had a friend in college from the uh, United Arab Emirates uh, from Dubai, and he was telling me that they, the camels that they are cost as much as like thoroughbred horses do here. So, like, you can spend a million dollars for racing camels, which blew my mind. I never thought that, that would be the case. So, uh, but the most, uh, some of the most important aspects of the culture for our purposes is the Arabic dialect that they speak, and that'll come out more in the, uh, when we get to the Quran. So the dialect that the, the Bedouins spoke, uh, of Arabic is important. And this idea, you've heard of the lex talionis, the eye for an eye, uh, or, you know, this, this idea of, um, for, uh, settling disputes for conflict solving. So that... That, that eye for an eye or that lex talionis is really an important concept for, Andrew, for that we'll see as we come out. Um, <laughs> so uh, the tribe that Muhammad belonged to was the Quraysh. Uh, so he belongs to the Quraysh tribe. And this is one of those tribes that I mentioned that urbanized and lived in the city of Mecca. Probably should switch that. Uh, so around the city of Mecca, the Quraysh tribe actually settles here, and they, they are the ones who take control of this pilgrimage uh, that is uh, <coughs> important in the life of uh, in Mecca. And they're important. This this tribe is important in the founding of the city. Uh, Muhammad's actual clan is the, the Banu Hashim, um, and that's just a side note. So. Uh, some of you have heard this, uh, nation of Jordan referred to as the Hashemite uh, Kingdom of Jordan. Uh, and so that Hashemite comes from this Banu Hashim. They, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan claims that name is, is a dip- saying that they actually trace their lineage straight from the prophet's family. So that's why, uh, they're named that. So that's just a side note. Uh, that's a bonus for the class. So. Um, the city of Mecca received most of its wealth from um, from this pilgrimage, religious pilgrimage to the city. And so control of the religious site, uh, which is uh, known as the Kaaba, which is, I think, this, I think this picture depicts. So you've, I've said this a few times, this Kaaba, this, which is depicted here. Uh, and if you actually see a picture of it today, they actually, it kind of does look like this. It's a big square building. They actually, every year, will knit... This black, uh, make a brand new, uh, cloth cover to cover this building. Every year they re, re-knit this thing or remake it. Uh, but it's covered, it's this building. And so this, in this were hot, uh, held the 360 idols that were, uh, people would bring from all the different tribes, uh, all around Arabia. So no matter what religion, no matter what tribe, there would be a time of year when all warfare would stop, all conflict would end, and they would make this, all the tribes would come to Mecca to do this religious pilgrimage. And they would bring their their idols, and they would place their idols inside here. Um, and so you'll see that actually in the second, in the movie on the second week, they'll show kind of what it looks like inside or what, you know, this uh, movie depiction of, of this uh, event, of this pilgrimage Uh, pre-Islamic pilgrimage but Mecca was also an important uh, stopping point on the trade routes and I touched on that a little bit you know this east-west and this north-south trade routes which is important because of where India and where Southeast, South Asia trade is coming in European uh, Central Asian trade all these things are coming through Mecca and then moving up into Europe so this is a really important control of Mecca is really important for wealth, and why that's important you'll see as we get to closer to Muhammad's birth. So um, honor, identity, protection—all tied to one's membership, uh, is, is membership in the clan. These are all important concepts. Um, the, the clan, clan identity in, in Arab culture, uh, the importance of the clan for Arabs predates Islam. And in many ways, was one of the things Muhammad sought to break. He sought to break this uh, uh, identity tied strictly to clan, uh, but it, it reasserts itself after his death. But we're talking about Muhammad's life prior to his birth. Just prior to his birth, his father Abdullah dies, and leaves him into his, Now he's just a, or, uh, he just has his mother Amina. Uh, after about. A year or two after he was born, she decides to send him away, send him out to the desert. So he's born in Mecca. He just has his mother, no father. And this is important. If you remember, this is a male-dominated culture. Orphans and widows are not well taken care of. Uh, but she is in this clan, so uh, you know there there is a little bit of protection, uh, a little bit for her. Uh, but she decides to send him off out of Mecca out of this urban area back out to the desert because the virtues and the strength that he could receive out in the desert uh, were an important aspect of what it meant to be a man in Arab culture at that time, in this Bedouin Arab culture. You know, go out to the desert and be raised in the desert uh, and toughen up uh, for a couple of years of your early life. So she sends him out there to live with a wet nurse, uh, to live with the Bedouin who are still out living in the rural areas. Um, Muhammad is raised by this wet nurse uh, the, among these Bedouin for about until he was about six years, six years old. So for four years uh, after he, you know, she sends him out for four years. He lives there. His mom dies around the age of six. So now he's just a complete orphan. Uh, so while you know in any culture, orf- being orphaned is, is a tragedy I mean, It doesn't matter even today. It's a it's a tragedy. But in Bedouin culture, uh, being orphaned often meant death. It was almost like a death penalty because, at this point, there was no one. You were just a liability. Especially, it, it was a little bit different when you're urbanized. But when you're out in on caravan and living along a Bedouin lifestyle of traveling location to location, a, you know, a young child with no one to care for them just becomes a liability. And so this is, uh, you know, one of those events that. Uh, Become important in the shaping of his life, and you'll see. And you can kind of see these things that he begins to address when when he first uh, receives these. Um, his followers seem like they're aimed at some of the practices against orphans, uh, and so that may not make sense. But we'll, we'll we'll flesh that out. Um. So this seems to have been the case. With Muhammad, he didn't. He was cared for by his grandfather after his his uh, mother dies, uh Abdel Talib, um, who is himself the head of this this tribe, uh, sub tribe of the uh, um, Quraysh. So he's in the Banu Hashim tribe. He's the clan. He's the tribe elder. His grandfather is, and uh, so that gives him a little bit of of. Uh, it's a. It's important because he's able to take care for him, Muhammad, in ways that others probably couldn't have. But by the by age, so he this start happens when he is six. By the age eight, his grandfather dies, and now he's in under care of his uncle, uh, Abu Talib. Uh, from this point on, we don't know much about his youth. So it's we know these these kind of marks, uh, you know, these uh, hash marks along his lifetime time life up to age eight. So we don't really know much what happens from eight until his marriage. Uh, we just know that he probably was engaged in somehow engaged in these caravan trade. He probably was living a, lo- a rough life, um, but other than that, we don't know too much about us him, him in these intervening period. Now, any questions on any of that? I just have one because you mentioned about the the culture was if they their parent died. It was often of death sentence for them. where does their, then um, having little value of life come from um, So, so where does where does that come from you mean yeah. or like the At idea a, the death sentence part right uh, I mean, mainly it was a low value of life. it was it was related to uh, the fact their Bedouin lifestyle it was just such a harsh existence that if you didn't have some kind of uh, if you weren't able, and this is why women are at the very bottom. You know, young women were at the very bottom of the culture because at least a man, a young boy, had something going for him in the fact that they he could contribute to the wealth of the tribe. At some point, you're thinking, well, maybe we keep him alive. He'll actually help us down the road. Uh, it, but it was, it was mainly um, related to the fact of the harsh lifestyle of living in the desert. So just this harsh, wandering lifestyle where... You know, you're living day to day, trusting, you know, hoping that the water's still there at the next oasis. Uh, there's not enough resources to go around. And so um, caring for your own immediate family was, was the, the primary concern. And if anything was left over, then maybe you could, you know, give that out. But uh, so that it really was just a, a reflection of life, the lifestyle of living in the desert, the nomadic desert lifestyle so i don't know if that answers your question any other questions follow up on that good question um, the importance of all this then is that his experiences in that tribal that nomadic bedouin culture would have shaped his outlook of life, on life later and likely shaped the way islam begins so what do i mean by that a common thing i've heard in the past uh, I, and I mentioned this before when we, when I've interacted with Muslim and in particular Muslim women, is that there was this practice that I had mentioned before, where um, uh, infant girls would be taken out to the desert. And you actually, uh, there's a story. You'll see a depiction of this actually in the second in this in the movie. On the second week, there'll be this dramatic reenactment of this scene where you know this guy is remembering. You know, the scene where he's taking the, the girls out to the desert and burying them in the sand uh, and then leaving them. And so, this is something that's brought up, um, you'll often hear from, uh, from Muslim women. And it was one of the things that he abolishes right away. You know, one of the first things that he asserts after he, you know, uh, with the coming of Islam and forms this Islamic community is he's, he forbids this practice. So, um, why is that significant? Uh, why does he focus on these type of things? Why, is, why uh, focus your energy when this goes against the grain of what Bedouin culture was? I mean, this harsh lifestyle of uh, only worrying about what, what you could do best for your, you and your own, uh, that le- reflection, reflective of life in the desert. It's probably because of his youth. Uh, as a young child, it uh, was difficult, but he, he was uh, cared for enough that he at least didn't starve to death. Uh, a male child in, in Bedouin culture and many other cultures w- was seen as an asset. So you can even see this in China when they had that one-child policy. You know, you had a lot of times if it was found out the sex of the child was a, uh, was a girl, they would have abortions, uh, you know, during the, the height of the communist period. Um, but so because he could see the the... You know, a male could contribute to the family. Uh, he would likely stay with the clan, contribute to the wealth of the clan, even after marriage. Whereas, uh, you know, even with a, a female, they would marry outside the clan and leave the clan. Yeah. Hey, you just said if they found out uh, the sex of the baby. I'm talking about with China. Sorry, that was the, in the mod. I was saying, showing a, a modern day parallel of. Okay, yeah, I was yeah, sorry. About how they do that back Yeah, how sorry. So, the, yeah, a modern day parallel of that type of thinking of male the importance of males is what we we saw it in China in the modern days. So good question. Yeah, sorry, I should have. uh, I make these segues in my mind and sometimes I I don't think. No, (laughs) no, good question. It's very rare a lot of times that you're the only person thinking it, so it's good to ask those questions. Um, Muhammad would have absorbed that lesson. We would imagine that he probably absorbed this lesson of the difficulty of life for an orphan. The difficulty of life of seeing firsthand these injustices uh, these injustices uh, perpetrated and they, they affected him. Uh, he didn't just change the practice inside the existing culture he broke it. So he didn't just look to reform it he actually made a hard break with that by outlawing that practice. Again we're not trying to say like we're not making the same argument as like a Muslim woman would. We're not saying like how virtuous Islam is we're just saying trying to get into The mindset of 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 what uh, how Islam begins to take the shape it does. Um, He brought certain practices wholesale into the community while forbidding others. So that that's really one of the really hard things to understand. You know, we talked about why does he bring in certain things and certain things he's he puts out of the religion. Uh, Islam was born into an urban setting. It was born into the city of Mecca, and it's important. Uh, to remember, you know that it wasn't—it wasn't like a desert religion. It was actually an urban. It starts as an urban religion. Um, Islam privileges individual responsibility and piety over tribal dynamics, and some, that's something we would also are somewhat surprised to see a, in in a culture, uh, in a Bedouin culture. So the weakening of the tribal culture that was uh, going on due to the uh, The interplay, we talked about this in the first session, the regional powers, the Byzantines and the Sassanids, and this power play that they're making in this region uh, is already weakening that culture. Uh, And so Islam coming into that finds itself uh, being able to grasp on that and and, uh, use that to its, its advantage. Uh, returning to Muhammad's life, as I said, we don't have much information about his life. From the time of his youth uh, and young adulthood, his life was difficult but not severe. But his fortune changes at age 25. So we know at age, age 8, he goes and lives with his uncle. We don't have many details. But age 25 is when he gets married to his wife uh, Khadija. And this is probably, if not the only second to the beginning the revelations that he begins receiving at age 40. So his marriage to uh, Khadija is is, uh, outside of that that event, that uh, revelation event, is the most significant event of his life. Uh, We know that his wife was uh, one of his first converts. She was one of his biggest supporters. We know from those uh, his the writings of those who knew the uh, that have survived things that are mentioned in hadith uh, that his wife was one of his biggest supporters. She consoled him at times when he was depressed. So the, the Quran records times when Muhammad was in doubt, when he was uh, under, um, facing facing opposition from the culture around him. He was dejected. He wanted to give up at times. Uh, his wife was often the one that encouraged him the most. Um, due to her, it, also made an impact on his financial finances because you know he's he's. Under his uncle's protection, but he still doesn't have much in the way of his own wealth. But all of a sudden, he marries this woman who is a successful uh, businesswoman of her time. So, which is uh, we'll understand why that's noteworthy. But he marries into this wealth, and immediately his his fortune changes. Um. So she's actually forty years old. So this is no yeah. How did did he become a leader? Or how did? No, I haven't. So we're yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, great question. We're actually getting there. So we haven't gotten there yet. So why? Uh, actually, so one of the things we talked about is his virtue, and this will become his. He begins to have a reputation, and this charisma that follows him, and we'll explore that more uh, when he makes his trip to Medina. When he takes the community of Medina after this is a little bit into his life. Um-Why is he invited? Why Muhammad? Why do these Medinan, why in the city of Medina do they invite Muhammad up there? Well, he has this reputation for being an honest person, an honest broker, a good judge of character. So they say, you know we should bring him up here to settle this dispute. And uh, so that his charisma is, plays an important part, his uh, virtue, his reputation for living a virtuous life. Becomes an important part for why people begin to follow him, and things like that. But uh, so, good question. Any other questions about uh, any of that? So his wife is forty years old. He's twenty-five. His wife's forty, which even in you know I think even in the United States in two thousand seventeen is a significant would be a significant thing. But talking about Arab culture in the sixth century, seventh century. This is, you know, huge. Like, it's, it's almost mind-blowing that this would happen. But it does speak, it gives us a little bit of insight. We can draw certain conclusions about his wife's life, about Khadija's life. She's 40 years old. Uh, she was likely married. Uh, we know that she was married at least once, maybe twice before. Uh, she probably had this wealth somewhere with her husband's were Successful. They die. She, she inherits this wealth and is able to capitalize on it and then turn a profit by engaging in this caravan trade. Uh, but she was noteworthy because as a widow, which, you know, in, in, across the Near East, so all across this whole region, you know, that's why the the, the Old Testament <coughs> mentions widows uh, multiple times, cared for widows and orphans, because in, in every culture across the Near East, um, you know, widows were often... Left on their own. That's why the story of Ruth and the person of Naomi is, takes on such significance. Because this widow, widows in that culture were often just left on their own. Because they had already left their family. Now their husband dies and they're left without any kind of protector. Uh, and so uh, the fact that she was a successful uh, business person in that culture is very significant. Yeah. Jerry? How was she able to after the death of her husband, able to maintain control if she had no rights? That, that's a great question. And uh, the records don't tell us too much about how, the how. Uh, a lot of historians just try to make surmise that her husbands must have, she must have shown herself as a uh, a capable business person when her husbands were alive and that people just took notice uh, or that somehow they left some type of will, some testament to say, you know, when I, this, she gets everything. And, or somehow the, the, her, the business associates of the husband knew she was capable. It wasn't like, well, let's give her a shot. It, it had to be that in that culture she had already proven herself while her husband was alive. Uh, but unfortunately, it's all here, it's conjecture because we don't, the, the record doesn't speak to the how it is a great question because you think it, it, it almost doesn't make sense because in that culture of, of the difficulties of, of women uh, of, the, uh, of widows uh, of women of that age of being able to live in this male dominated culture and, and a harsh culture you know the, the trade as I mentioned it, it was a harsh it wasn't just like tough living because of the resources it was tough living because you're you're worried about raids you're you know you're constantly worrying about people coming and taking you know death these kind of things war internet uh conflict between tribes so all this um speaks to uh, the the noteworthiness of of her life any other questions about that Uh, so the next major point so we so he marries at age 25 we don't know we you know we would imagine that his wife's Business goes on. She continues on in this caravan trade, uh, and Muhammad is somehow engaged in it. We don't know exactly what he did. He, he didn't take it over from her, but he was got, somehow got engaged into the trade that she had already established. But the next major timeline uh, point on the timeline that we know of is at age 40. So at age 40, he begins receiving the revelations that would be recorded and make up the Quran. Uh, so from 40 until the end of his life, uh, roughly 23 years, he's going to receive these these uh, revelations. So it's, it takes place uh, in a cave on a rocky hill there in Mecca, just outside the city limits of Mecca. He receives his vision. And um, the revelations that he's receiving throughout his life, so for 23 years he receives these Ongoing revelation. Uh, Only the the initial revelation uh, are is an actual vision. The rest are just like he just hears them in his like a voice in his ear, Uh, and it's not even like language. You know, it's I guess what a charismatic would call call like angelic language It was not like human language or something he receives. But the first the first uh, um, revelation at age forty. Is is a vision that he receives from angel angel the angel Gabriel. He, he attests to the angel Gabriel. Um, we'll talk more about this these revelations and the specific revelations uh, when we get to the topic of the Quran. Uh, but we want to understand the significance of his prophet prophethood. As non Muslims, a question arises about the nature of the revelation, the truthfulness of the prophethood, right? We. You know, we, we instinctively have this, you know, doubt in our mind about this. Uh, and if someone were to do something like this, we, you know, we would have, we would dismiss really quickly. But we want to at least give some thought to the idea that Muhammad, I've uh, had, you know, questions arise. Was he just some kind of trickster? Uh, was he trying to deceive people? Was he possessed? You know, what, what, what exactly, you know, people try to attribute different things to, to what was going on. Um, this prophetical phase of his life, so the, the 20, last 23 years of his life, uh, are, are marked, with the exception of the last three, roughly three years, uh, are marked by challenges and rejection, hardships, disappointments. Uh, he's able to see his followers. You'll see some of this in those films. Uh, his followers are beaten, uh, imprisoned, um, this, you know, that was his. That was just day to day life for Muhammad. That's why he ends up having to flee Mecca at some point. Uh, throughout all of this, his wife is an important person in his life, uh, due to the support she gave him. His early followers provided a similar role, but none comparable to uh, Khadijah. Uh, I point this out to highlight the fact that. Her importance to Muhammad testified to the fact that his early career was a difficult one. Why is she, why is she mentioned the way she is? Why does she take on such an important role in Muhammad's life? It's because uh, of the where he was, like he was constantly in a state of um, you know depression. I don't, depression maybe is not the right word, but he was always facing opposition, and this took an effect on him. And so his wife. It's always lending him the support, you know. And so this testifies to the fact that he was not, um, you know, he wasn't living the good life. He wasn't just like had these followers and living the good life. Uh, he was actually living a very difficult life. Uh, the, the, the role, you know, the, the, the fact that his wife was important to him testifies to the difficulty of his life. Um, how she was important to him. Uh, so, returning to the issue of the revelation of Muhammad's prophethood, whenever, wherever, uh, whenever we, as non-Muslims, land—excuse uh, me—however we come down on the issue, uh, the evidence points to the fact that Muhammad himself. So, I mean, for us, we're going to dismiss it as Christians. We just dis- we dismiss it, and rightfully so. But the the evidence uh, shows seems to say that Muhammad himself was absolutely convinced. Uh, of the source of the revelation and his be- being chosen as the mouthpiece of God. So he, was, he himself did not seem to have any doubt. It wasn't that uh, there's was no evidence to support the idea that he was trying to mislead people on his own. Uh, so however we want to take that, uh, there doesn't seem to be any, at least nothing I've read that seems to be reputable that would point to the fact that he, uh, he was doing anything other than what he felt was the right thing to do. At times of rejection and hardship, uh, his remembrance, uh, his remembrance of the event, kept him going. Uh, that event, that first revelation. So, as the hardships that he encounters later on for the next twenty years, it was that event. He he recalls that event in that cave, at his when he turned you know at his, in the fortieth year of his life, keeps him going because he's he, he's able to draw back and say, you know, when in doubt, he's able to connect. This, his present circumstances to this past being chosen by God um, so hopefully that it follows what I'm, I'm trying to I get at here uh, his conviction of God's calling kept him going so why do we need to know this why, why is this important for us to cover now why, do I, why am I beating this into the ground for one it helps us to see that from an Islamic perspective the question of Muhammad's being chosen as the prophet of God is, is not an issue so they don't question it. From the sources, Muhammad was absolutely convinced. So this means that the picture which emerges, as well as the impulse behind his composition, is a normative one. This, this is a picture of how the Muslim community should be projected back in, into the times of its founder, who has been described in mythic terms. Its intention to, is to portray the religion of Islam as uh, conceptually identifiable from the time of Muhammad. So... Um, we'll flesh that out a little bit more. Any any questions on that? I know there's there's pushback on that, right? We obviously all have take uh, issue with that with Muhammad's uh, conviction, but from an Islamic perspective, there was there's no question uh, to that. And at least how it, it, you know as we engage in conversations with Muslims, and that's where we're all hoping, you know, hopefully we're all having opportunity or, or looking to do or to build on uh, if we have opportunity uh, at least having that knowledge so we discussed the importance of Muhammad's wife uh, uh, Khadija and how she played in her his life uh, but there's a further reason why she's noteworthy so we know from the early sources as well that her cousin she has this cousin whose name is Waraka um, he, that he's a Christian that he's some somehow related to one of the Christian sects uh, that's present in Arabia at this time, and his the importance is that upon receiving the, the initial revelations uh, that that Muhammad gets, Muhammad speaks with her cousin Warqa, uh, due to being troubled, he doesn't really understand what these revelations are at first. He doesn't understand what he's supposed to do. He's he's confused. He's conflicted. So he talks with this. Person, because he he's able to, you know, he knows that um, he, this person is a Christian, and so he's connecting this with this uh, some, you know, the idea of revelation, you know, that's that's present in, present in the Christian re, uh, religion. And Warqa becomes important because he encourages Muhammad. He interprets. We know uh, that Warqa actually interprets uh, the the things that Muhammad is going through 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 an Old Testament. Uh, narrative he connects what happens to Muhammad with what, what happened to the Old Testament prophets for in his own mind and for Muhammad so Muhammad begins to see in his mind that these what he's receiving is actually the continuation of what has was began in the Old Testament and Warqa, actually this this cousin of his wife is an important person in that role uh, to connect those dots for him uh, yeah yeah so, and you got to remember. Uh, so, the spellings will sometimes change because these are Arabic, obviously Arabic English translations of Arabic words. So sometimes. Th- You'll see different spellings, but those are the most common. How do you pronounce her name? What's that? Oh, what's that? How do you pronounce her name? Khadija. 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 Like, yeah, you yeah, just say Khadija, Khadija, but you know, like in English, I think most people just say Khadija, but Arabic is not. His name's Kh- War. Khadija. War. Strong Q. Okay. War. I had a question. Uh, if he was a literate, that was important to, yeah. to Muslims or to Arabs uh, to prove that this was uh, from God who wrote the Quran yeah well that's a good question um, and his his the, the fact of his um, his illiteracy is very important it's not just like a side note or it's just not an interesting tidbit about his life it's actually a very important fact because it Muslims say, as I talked about in that first session, is that uh, he couldn't have read and copied things from other religions because he's illiterate and couldn't have read these things. Uh, but so that makes them divine. Is that where they? they, they were, right. So they connect it with were. his this divine um, uh, origin. Okay. The people that write it, and we'll get we'll, we'll flesh this out more when we get to the top of the Quran, are the people his followers. So the people around him are recording the things he comes to his community his followers he repeats verbatim the things he's being receiving and they're writing these things down and then at some point later uh, you know without getting too far into it within like 30 years of his, his death he will begin compiling it just an observation um, I did ask the point that um, they claimed him to be a prophet, and yet, in the biblical sense, he fell short of the qualifications of a prophet. Yeah. And yet, when he was receiving these so-called prophecies, he had Christian influence that wasn't in, at all pointing him toward the full verification of... Yeah. Him being a prophet, I just, I just think that's so well, ironic. It's, it's true. Uh, on one hand, I would say so. For them, obviously, we're, it's clear from the sources that the connection is that he's a mouthpiece for God. So that's for them, that's that's the defining. And that's all. That factor of what is a the prophet? These he receives these divine revelations and speaks them. It's just a mouthpiece, the the one who recites these things. Um, there was no other research into what is the biblical, uh, or you know, there was no desire to look any deeper, and maybe not even that knowledge of, at that time in that area with the people he's interacting with. Uh, but I would say that even in our modern time, you know, with people who claim these kind of things, those aren't always applied. Right. So unfortunately, uh, uh, we have as a cult. Uh, Humans, you know, human history. After you know, leaving in the couple thousand years, we don't consistently apply those things that we should be as well. Because, I mean, Joseph Smith, these people, right. you know, they're able to gain because people aren't don't apply what the Bible says consistently to their claims or pour it through a biblical worldview. So, yeah, it is. There is inconsistency, but only if you have that. Only if you are. Um, you you have that whole worldview together. If you if you're neglecting either willfully or ignorantly, just leaving parts out, then it would seem that you know you would even know that you're being inconsistent. Right. So, good question. Any other questions on that? All right. Uh, let's see if I can remember. Right. Yeah. Okay. So with Warka he interpreted and he helped confide in well Muhammad confided in him. Yeah. So was he the only Christian that he really got influence or that, outside influence no, from No, uh, well after he after a few years there's other Christians that he he'll make he'll one of the before he flees the Medina he flees across the Red Sea to uh, Abyssinia, which is modern day Ethiopia, and stays with, in a Christian, among a Christian kingdom. And inevitably, inevitably, he interacted with Christians and Jews along these trade routes. There's, there's no doubt because there's a Christian kingdom here in Yemen. So he's interacting with Christians and Muslims. The one that we know for sure that, that actually spoke into his life was this war. So he, he actually, we know from the sources and from Islamic sources, He actually takes these revelations and interprets them through an Old Testament narrative, connecting them with the Old Testament prophets. Good question. Uh, Anything else uh, related to those? Um, So, as I uh, actually, so next point, um, and he's also important, so he tells Muhammad, just like the Old Testament prophets underwent persecution from the Jews. You yourself are going to under, undergo persecution, and so this actually becomes speaking about the signs of, of a prophet. For him, this be, is a sign of, of being a true prophet, because just like the Old Testament prophets were rejected, uh, you know, by by the Jews, Muhammad's rejection by his people is actually a confirmation for him of his prophet. And it's Warqa that actually tells him this and encourages him with this. Um, so up to this point, we suspect, as I said, that Muhammad's interacting. We know he had to have interacted with Christians and Jews at some point, but we don't know uh, to what extent or to what brand of Christianity. Warka, I think we most believe he was uh, a monophysite-type Christianity, which is heresy, like a heretical form of Christianity, um, dealing with the divinity of Christ. But this is who he's, you know, we don't know, what what type of christianity how orthodox what he was learning orthodox with a capital o or a lower case orthodox is the actual uh, something we would recognize so would we want to question the authenticity of his christianity um i don't for me i don't think it would actually i mean, it wouldn't change anything in the fact that he right. you know uh but i can't help but question yeah I, it's hard to know how much of any kind of orthodox with a capital with a lowercase O right. that is what something we would recognize as true Christianity would actually even be present in the region at the time. We just don't we don't have much idea. Yet. Do we know if um the Bible was in printed form and widespread at that time or was it more of word of mouth? No, it was definitely they definitely had um it wasn't widespread in print at this time, but uh, there are lots of. I mean, it dep- I mean, so in the Old Testament, um, it wasn't widespread at this point. Households, but there there are three major Jewish tribes in the city of Medina, and so he definitely would have had. There definitely would have been written copies of the Old Testament at the very least in the city of Medina, close enough to him that he would have seen it, and presumably when he interacts with the Christians here that he would have uh, interacted with a New Testament but it would probably had, you know, um, it would have been like with Apocrypha and, and these other added books. So it wouldn't have been like, you know, what our standard 27 books of the New Testament, you know, uh, canon, a canon that we would look at today. We don't know. Uh, it was not widespread. So the answer your question, it wasn't widespread but there had to have been at least hard copies of the Old Testament in the region that he would have I, I, would have been in the area, so that's actually a good question. I, I know, but I can't speak; I'm just guessing at this point, speaking off the top of my head. But that's a good question. I should actually look it up. Uh, any other uh, follow-up or uh, any other questions about uh, related to that? So I know this is actually a topic that's pretty interesting for most. I mean, this idea that he's because we don't typically hear this—that he's actually interacting with someone who claims to be a Christian, that he's receiving this encouragement from a Christian source. You know what is it? We, we would surmise that he um, he's borrowing material from a, the Christian and uh, Jewish worldview. But we don't know to what extent. Um, we just can't. It's hard. To, it's hard to know. Other than these these couple of hard points that we can point to, uh, his uh, his wife's cousin, for instance. Six nineteen marks an important year in the life of Muhammad. Next, so six ten. Is when is when he's 40 years old. He's born in 570. 610 is when he begins receiving revelation. The revelation. 619. Uh, his main source of protection, his uncle. As I said, his uncle who took over the head of the tribe, passes away. His main protector against the Quraysh. So he's part of this Quraysh clan that rules Mecca, but they were they were opponents to Muhammad. They actually understood. The threat that Islam had meant for their their control over the religious sites in Mecca so he's actually receiving uh, and again you'll see some of this in the film, on this, the second week film intense op- uh, opposition from his own clan but his uncle this whole time is protecting him but at 619 his uncle passes away and then his his wife passes away in that same year so his main protection and his main confidant the same year passes away. And the person who takes over the leadership of the tribe uh, is actually against Muhammad. So he loses, uh, the the, the leader of the tribe passes away who actually supports him and is replaced by someone who opposes him uh, fervently. So increased persecution against Muhammad and his followers. He's starting to have a small band of people who are following him uh, in, in the city of Mecca listening to his what he's saying. His wife, his nephew, a few people, a few notable people. Um, you know, we're talking a few dozen people. So for 10 years, almost 10 years, almost a decade, he's got a few dozen people. Uh, manumitted slaves. So people, uh, there was one of his followers who had a decent amount of wealth and is buying up slaves, freeing slaves, and they become fo- uh, further followers. You actually see that as well. Um, this, uh, person, Bilal, you don't need to know his name. Um, the next major event, so 619, uh, and I'll, I'll try to wrap it up real quick here. Uh, 620, so this is the, probably his flight to Hijra. Um his flight from Mecca to Medina. In 620, uh, sorry, it's 622, but 620 uh, is important um, because it begins, things begin culminating. Um, actually, I'm going to stop here because I don't want to get, I won't be able to get in depth on those next sessions. Any questions before we stop? Again, next week we'll have the, the documentary, Inside Islam. It's a really good documentary, and then the week following it'll be the message. There'll be handouts. Uh, for both weeks as well, they'll be over there. I think, or oh, you can make Larry, pass Mr. Chardone, pass them out for. So, uh, any if there's no questions, uh, that's it. So, thanks for staying away.